you may have heard of the term agenda setting. Increasingly more people are. The idea is simple. Organizations or politicians can have an agenda, a set of goals that they're trying to accomplish, and will rearrange or decide upon certain actions based on those goals. In the case of media, this means that in order to accomplish something, they will carefully select what stories they put to air and what they don't. A politician does a similar thing with the policies, issues, and constituents that they focus on. However, with a perfect storm of insularization and corruption, this agenda setting can not just affect one given institution, but can affect the entire political environment. Essentially, wide-scale implicit or explicit coordination leads to politicians and aligned media outlets deciding the playing field, diverting attention away from any issues that harm them and towards the issues that they would rather the public be thinking about. This creates a dilemma where even finding a place to discuss more can be impossible, and changing the direction of either party, even for those who deeply care about it and hold power, can be next to impossible. Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. <laughs> Of course, one area where this applies is with the latest Liz Cheney news. She was removed from her position as the third-ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, due to, in large part, her opposition to Trump and her focus on the January 6th riots. The main argument was that Cheney is not doing good for the party, even if her opinions are correct. Well, how's that possible? How's it possible that someone who's expressing an opinion that would move the party to a better place, according to these critics, would still be actively damaging? The answer is simple. Regardless of what position the Republicans take, this is a heavily damaging issue because of the implications that it has on Donald Trump and those who would otherwise have considered him to be their allies. In other words, even just debating the issue, before any positions are known, before any stances are taken, can push voters one way or the other. Unfortunately, this argument is more or less correct. There have been various studies in the past that shows that voters' likelihoods to vote for different candidates can change drastically depending on what issues they're prompted with and what issues are most frequently being covered in the news. Because of Cheney's opposition and the ensuing drama, this has resulted in a quote-unquote news cycle that focuses more heavily on the Republican Party and on that history with regards to January 6th, then damaging the party. Of course, what this argument obscures is the benefit of taking those stances. Taking those stances changes the opinion that the public has on a given party and can hope to change the position of the party overall to a place that's more favorable with voters. However, this is a classic short-term versus long-term trade-off. In the short term, any mention of January 6th, any mention of criticism for the Republican Party's or for notable figures such as Donald Trump, will be a detriment. 
In the long run, this isn't the case. However, due to the interaction with one other idea that I've mentioned in previous episodes, insularization, or the extremely heightened value of people who already agree with you, people who may be the most active in a given party or institution, this effect gets highly skewed towards the present. Any disagreement with the more notable figures, even if it's on grounds that the majority of voters agree with, don't necessarily play to people who already considers themselves part of the Republican Party, and especially don't play to the people who have developed entrenched power through insular activism. Like I said last episode, this is not just a curse that affects the left, but also heavily affects the right. This phenomenon can also occur on the other side. It's most famously illustrated and has been adopted as part of many far-left ideologies in the essay by Herbert Marcuse called Repressive Tolerance. In it, he advocates that in order to accomplish goals for his political team, most notably that he was a self-proclaimed communist, that advocates should turn a blind eye to violence on their own side and become increasingly repressive towards the other side, even for things that are minorly on the right. This has strong parallels in practice. Of course, this is often what insular activism attempts to do. You can see this in the ouster of Liz Cheney, but you can also see this on the various harassment attacks, such as the one leveled against Antonio Garcia Martinez, a former employee of Apple who was fired due to this exact type of insular activism. We've already talked to a large extent about the dynamics that occur in what otherwise should be fairly neutral or apolitical fields, such as companies. However, today we're going to try to unpack the interaction that this has in parties and how to align the incentives of party members, of the institutions themselves, and of the general public. One thing before we get to that though, I think that it's become an increasingly obvious possibility that the formation of a quote-unquote anti-cult cult can be very possible, and in my opinion, this is already something that is picking up increasing steam. That is, a situation where there is a necessary backlash towards a cult-like behavior or an insular activist group that satisfies a similar definition, and that the organized attempts to try to oppose that cult-like behavior can become quite cultish itself, where deviation from a dogma is suppressed, where increasingly internal incentives instead of external playing to the general public become the driving forces of that opposing movement, and where the exact same dynamics in which people are less responsible to outside powers than they are to the internal organization, to the internal power brokers, becomes the dominant method in which a movement decides upon its actions. In that case, you obviously encounter many of the same problems that they're trying to address in the first place. And maintaining that humility and maintaining that ability to see the actual incentives at play, to see the conditions that result in insular activism, has to be a focus regardless 
of whether you're organizing against something or for it. This also has an obvious interaction with tribalism and with quote-unquote negative partisanship, essentially the partisanship that derives from the hatred of the opposing party instead of support for your own party. That's because there are passion-selecting incentives, those who are more likely to try to gain power or to just simply put more effort in to supporting an organization are likely those who are most passionate. And if the situation that is driving that passion is simply negative partisanship, as it most likely is in the United States, then that passion-selecting incentive actually becomes a tribal-selecting incentive, which, once again, plays into those exact insular dynamics. So that should be a fairly clear map of the problems, but what exactly are the solutions? We can't necessarily just take the simple step that we talked about in previous episodes. If you're running a business, if you're running some organization that doesn't really touch politics, then the solution that I gave before is just to prohibit insular activism. However, if you're running a political party, that's quite self-defeating. The entire point of a political party is to come to political decisions and to rally popular opinion around them. A party needs activism to exist, and so do many of these types of political organizations. The same solution simply doesn't apply. So how do we prevent parties from falling to these insular incentives when some degree of them is necessary to move the party forward? In fact, this isn't necessarily an impossibility. If we look at the parties of the past, they've recognized that short versus long-term decision. There is a benefit to looking towards an external appeal, to trying to win over the votes of people who may be undecided or who never voted at all. There's also been, in the past, strong attempts in the lowercase l liberal tradition in order to create positions for dissenters, in order to open up the public or even the private space to those who might criticize a movement, who might criticize in a political direction, and to try to understand these criticisms and use them in going forward and making policy predictions. One way of verifying this is by using objective predictions, ones based on popularities of issues, for example, based on the success that they predict for other candidates, etc. Things that are clearly measurable and can be standardized in a way that forces consistency. If someone predicts one election, which may be just a simple up-down vote, then this doesn't give a lot of predictive power. However, if they've been right on a variety of issues across a long time frame, then that is something to seriously consider when assessing their credibility. This is fairly simple logic, and most people would be able to come up with that on their own. So why is this so infrequently adopted in parties? One answer is insular activism, but even those who are focused on gaining power within an organization could find use in maintaining those voices. Not only that, but as I just mentioned, this has been an equilibrium that's been struck by many parties across the world in the past. What's changed? The frequency of feedback of information. Essentially, 
you hit diminishing returns on what you're able to accomplish. You get information at incredibly rapid rates, so you can build up an increasing passion in order to try to accomplish something, and even increasing insular organization. However, the actual things that can be accomplished, both inside the party and out, don't necessarily speed up at all. Take elections, for example. They typically occur at regular intervals. In the United States, that's four years for presidential elections, and two years for presidential or midterm elections. What this means is that there's an activist restlessness, that there's not an understanding that the ability to accomplish more is hard rate limited. So anything that approximates victory, even if it is only beneficial in the short term, while being overall self-destructive in the long term, gets grabbed right away. And in this case, that means attacking dissenters viciously. Of course, this is only one of many explanations. There is a fair amount of data to back it up, actually, which is surprising because it is a relatively recent phenomenon. However, looking at the popularity of dissenters and looking at the rate of internal conflict before and after an election, it's clear that the times in which an election is near often creates an incentive for a party to rally around various leaders and not to be so internally vicious. You can see this, for example, in the short amount of time between the Democratic primary and the general election. However, as I said before, there are various things that can explain this, and this is only one hypothesis with a fair amount of supporting data. This trend of removing dissenters has also occurred in universities and is increasingly occurring in journalism as well. These same dynamics apply. The restlessness, the search for a political goal, often turns on the internal members, particularly the internal dissenters, most heavily. And if you look at this problem across time, then one other additional element is that this can occur on racial, ethnic, or religious lines. This can result in extremely dangerous scapegoating, personal targeting, and yes, real actual violence. If someone understands each of these principles and the historic application of those principles, then they should understand why scapegoating, and especially the silencing of dissenters, is so dangerous. This is essentially a much more refined version of the quote-unquote free speech absolutist argument. And there's been a very powerful contingent of people who have gone much further on this, on both the moral and the historical lines, including Greg Lukianoff and Yasha Monk, for two voices who I specifically recommend with regards to free speech. However, going beyond the parallels, going beyond the possible costs, and actually looking at the calculations in order to strike a balance, in order to find circumstances in which keeping dissenters becomes increasingly difficult, is one piece of a puzzle that I'm glad I could possibly add. The common theme with these three factors, these three fairly clear mistakes that both parties in the United States and many other parties around the world are increasingly making, is 
that there's a rush to action. That insularization not only creates fervor, not only creates calcified emotions, emotions that are attached to a political stance, but also create a rush to act, which often results in extreme self-destructive behavior. In fact, if one party were to stave off these forces while the other one succumbed to it in a two-party or mostly two-party system, then it has an incredibly strong chance to become dominant. In fact, we've seen that exact scenario occur. I'm not necessarily sure there's actually been that much of a policy development in the Conservative Party of the United Kingdom. However, they've gained some of the largest victories in many of the most unexpected places in the most recent few years. Of course, the shadow looming over this is Brexit, the major policy change that maybe other parties were slow to adapt to. However, in the early days of Brexit, that didn't play to such a large advantage. In fact, Theresa May, Boris Johnson's predecessor, barely won re-election at that time. Instead, the factor that has mainly shifted is the internal collapse and radicalization of the Labour Party, initially under Jeremy Corbyn, and even now among attempts to reform by their new leader, a failure to avoid or to reverse those incentives that still remain in the party. In other words, it's incredibly easy to shift from an unstable equilibrium in which both sides are hemorrhaging themselves due to this insular activism to a situation where the other has done the bare minimum. This means, you guessed it, another sign of optimism, since the probability that this shift occurs is strictly increasing. However, there are various factors within parties themselves, particularly in the United States, that make this increasingly difficult. One is the reinforcement distance, which I've done an entire episode on. Essentially, we're currently in a state where politicians and partisan media figures can increasingly put barriers between them and any sort of connection to reality whether it be the success or failure of a policy, or with the actual facts that are being reported. Of course, this is not always true for every single figure, but the trend is increasing with the ability to mass communicate. With increasing hyperconnectedness of media comes an increasing ability to dilute information, to distract from core issues, and to avoid confronting very clear factual evidence. Another is the ability, particularly in the United States, to affect the political system itself. In America, state political parties are able to draw the political maps that elect both their own and their federal representatives, which means that power can very easily compound. Not only that, but the idea of ideological control of an institution such as a media organization, such as a university, such as a company, has become increasingly accepted in the United States. It's often seen as a blight, but not as a grievous source of corruption. Would be seen, and actually has been seen, 
many times in the past in other countries such as Canada or the United Kingdom as the threat to democracy that it is. This compounding effect means that the short-term influence that can be gained is actually valuable, especially for those trying to apply internal pressures and to grab power through that means. Because this partisan control often not only decides what happens externally between two parties, but also the power internally, that immediate feedback, the short-term benefit that allows access to these levers of power can exactly be the key to seizing power within an organization. This is the so-called iron law of institutions. One simple idea is to make it harder to change the rules at play. Examples include creating bipartisan or non-partisan election commissions, as is done in most other countries around the world, in restricting the abilities to change laws that are already in place, and to create higher thresholds to pass. One element of this is my position on the US filibuster. Essentially, in one half of the American legislature, the US Senate, there is something called a filibuster, which essentially means that the threshold is higher for bills to pass that don't fall under special exceptions. This historically was due to senators being able to hold up debate by continuously speaking until 60 senators voted to remove them, to end the debate, and to vote on a law. However, in recent times, this has changed to simply submitting a notice of filibuster that requires no continuous speaking at all. Despite many people who argue that this is counter-majoritarian, I think that this is possibly a beneficial change in the US system, particularly for the circumstances that they find themselves in right now. That's because of the exceptions, the most notable of which is budget reconciliation, which essentially allows senators of the majority party the power to change things that have to do with the budget, things like taxation, things like spending, etc. This is an effective way to focus on things that are often tangibly oriented. They do involve spending or gaining money after all, and can be more effectively measured, and have much more of a benefit to ordinary people than the cultural issues that often take up the majority of political debate. For example, in the past, it's been ruled that the minimum wage does not count as eligible under budget reconciliation, even though it's likely that it will have an effect on the budget because it changes the economic conditions, and it pretty obviously being an economic issue. With those caveats aside, with possibly some reform, in order to change what counts as a budget reconciliation, or changing it to be broader and more encompassing of other economic issues, this is something that is actually probably a better choice. It forces the Senate to focus on these more practical issues, and limits the ability to divert attention towards quote-unquote culture war issues, towards ones that are based on tribal symbolism, instead of based off of an actual outcome that is trying to be accomplished. One additional step might be to make it even more difficult in order to pass laws that change election circumstances. This isn't perfect, because right now, the election systems aren't necessarily neutral either. 
However, preventing the further escalation by, for example, raising the cap to, say, 70 votes may be one method that further incentivizes parties to think in the long term. The last issue that I want to discuss is the problem of trust at scale, particularly over time. This is because the greater the amount of people that are in a political party, and the longer it exists for, the less viable a trust-maintaining strategy applies. This is because it only takes one political figure to take over a party, to gain popular votes, and then betray his or her promises in a clearly malicious way in order to permanently lose the trust of many voters and to take them to a very cynical condition. In other words, as a party scales, or any institution for that matter, it becomes exponentially harder in order to maintain trust. That means that a party based on consistency and on policy direction can often fail, can often lose to one that makes more cynical ploys. This to me is an open problem, that is creating trust maintaining institutions that also scale and also gain the ability to make substantive change. Some say that the idea of trust should just be dismissed as a whole, that there needs to be further bounds and tighter connections that bind politicians to the opinion of the people, such as with a direct democracy bill, one that allows the issues that gain the most support to be voted on by the public. Others advocate that there needs to be more lenience towards institutions and to be more willing to trust them in the face of the circumstances that they may be facing. Both of these has its flaws, and I'm not quite sure on how to balance them or if either of them work at all. But if you have a suggestion, then I strongly recommend that you leave a question in a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts, or to leave a 5-star review on any app, give a screenshot, and then email your question to metapoliticspodcast at gmail.com. Aside from that, just reviewing the show, sharing with your friends, and giving that recommendation that only you can give is always something you can do in order to help more people understand these ideas, in order to create those connections across various realms of information, and to leave the world a little bit better than it was just a few seconds ago. And, as always, if you do that, thank you.